Good morning, friends. We'll try that one again. Good morning, friends. Good morning. Just in case you're wondering, Pastor Steph had to be away in Edmonton on Friday and Saturday, and so we ended up uh, switching roles this morning. And uh, I get the opportunity to speak to you uh, out of John chapter 13. We've been walking through the book of John here in the last year, and we're approaching that intimate time just before Jesus went to the cross. And during this uh, time and in this section, we see some very intimate details about Jesus and his disciples and the kind of emotional things that were going on between them. Now, if I say the name Benedict Arnold to you, that's going to create a picture in your mind. Now, Benedict Arnold actually started off as a war hero during the uh, time of the liberation, you could say, of the United States. And uh, if you saw the movie The Patriot years ago, he would have been fighting right alongside Mel Gibson during this time. And he established quite a reputation. In fact, there's a Canadian connection here. He led a couple of raids up into the north, into the British territory, and uh, led the attack on Quebec City and on Montreal City. So he was a very active uh, warrior for the, conf conf the, excuse me, for the U.S. Army then. Unfortunately, he was overlooked for promotion. A lot of people started taking credit for his activities. Uh, he was criticized very heavily uh, along the way, very publicly by George Washington. And that soured him. He was criticized for his uh, money handling. And some thought that he had actually absconded with all kinds of finances that were meant for the army. Because of all of this and his financial worries, his inability to move up further in ranks, it soured his attitude and his response to those people that he worked with. And he engaged in some secret meetings with the British Army, at first agreeing to sell information on troop movements and things like that. And then his fort that he was actually leading, which was at West West Point, he agreed for a sum of money to turn over the whole fort to the British Army and actually begin fighting for the British Army. That plot was actually uncovered just in time so that it could not happen. And he escaped to the British Army where he was able to uh, take on a new commission, a higher rank, higher pay. Uh, he actually, after the war, even spent some time living in Canada before he ended up going to uh, London where he lived out the rest of the, his years. And because of all of this, in American lore, Benedict Arnold became a name that was synonymous with being a traitor and, and uh, being a betrayer of his own people. In fact, if you would call someone a Benedict Arnold... You would say that that person had just stabbed me in the back. And what Benedict Arnold went through is no different from what you and I are tempted to do every single day. 
And I guarantee you that you are tempted to turn your back on Jesus in so many ways. And, and this is one of the things that we as believers need to come to wrestle with and make peace with. Is that every day you will be tempted to betray Jesus and everything you believe. And that comes out in the decisions that you make, in the values you choose, how you treat others, whether graciously or harshly. It's, it's evidenced in the forgivenesses that we refuse others, or even being identified with Jesus. And probably one of the most distressing things in my life is how I see Benedict Arnold coming out in my own life. And how I see myself, sometimes in little ways, sometimes in big ways, denying Jesus. Well, a name that's probably equally as infamous as Benedict Arnold is the name Judas. And if you would call someone a Judas, rather, you know, whether you have a religious background or not, chances are you would understand what that means. A name that's also synonymous with treachery and betrayal. You know, in Judas, this was, was brewing for a while. In fact, Jesus, earlier on in his ministry, as he was talking about his disciples, his followers, he said, but one of you is a devil. That kind of strong language coming from Jesus. But he knew that not everyone within his 12 disciples was a true follower. Now, Judas had lots of experience around Jesus. He saw the miracles just as all the other disciples did. He engaged in the ministries just as all the other disciples did. In fact, he was among the 12 when Jesus sent them out on a special mission, going out there and uh, engaging with miracles and doing healings, casting out uh, evil spirits, and preaching the good news of the kingdom. He was doing all the right things. He was saying all the right things. And in some ways, I think he was almost a true believer. But unfortunately, the Bible describes him as a thief, someone who was self-motivated, who was concerned about his own things, and as Jesus said, not clean. And this really came to head. Remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Steph was preaching about Mary and how she took that expensive perfume and broke it out over Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. And it was at this time that Judas speaks up. And he says that, why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor? And the editorial comments in the, in, uh, the section say that Judas didn't care about the poor. But he was a thief, and he wanted the money because he would often help himself to it. And Jesus' response was, leave her alone. So Jesus reprimands him right there and stops that train of thought. And Matthew and Mark tell us that it was at this time that Judas decided, I'm going to get him back. And it was common knowledge that the priests and the Pharisees were looking for a way to kill Jesus. And so Judas then went to them and made an agreement, a secret pact. And he says, what will you give me if I turn him over to you? 
And they agreed on the 30 pieces of silver. And so that night in the upper room, Jesus had just shown his servanthood and, and was teaching them about true leadership. And then Jesus began to be very sorrowful. Can you imagine how it touched his human heart to know that those who were sitting among his table, his closest, most intimate companions, were going to turn their back on him that night? And he says, tonight one of you is going to betray me. And of course, they all looked each other at each other and said, who, me? And then I'm sure they went, who, you? Who? And Peter is the one who was often the the outspoken one. And I love Peter because you never have to guess what Peter is thinking. It always comes out. And Peter goes to John and says, ask him. Ask him, which one of us is it? And Jesus' response was this. And some of you who have the King James Version Bibles use the term the sop. And Jesus says, the one that I give the sop to is the one. And I'm not sure if everybody heard that or not, but John sure did because he wrote about it. But that sop was an intimate sign of respect and honor. And so Jesus took a piece of bread And he dipped it in the soup, in the sauce. And he hands it to Judas. And Judas takes it. And Jesus speaks very quietly to him and saying, What you are about to do, do it now. And none of the others understood why Jesus said that. They thought that Jesus was talking to to Judas about going and buying something that they still needed that night or making some arrangements or giving some money to the poor. Those were common things that they would expect that he would do. Nobody suspected what was going to happen. And Judas left, made his arrangements with the high priests and the Pharisees to meet them in a dark garden later that night because he knew Jesus And his followers would be there. And that night as he led that horde of soldiers, and you know, sometimes it's pictured that there's maybe a half a dozen or a dozen soldiers there. From what we understand, there could have been as many as 600 soldiers that show up at the garden. And you don't show up at the garden quietly with 600 soldiers. You can hear them coming. And when they arrived in the dark, Judas goes forward, and he had arranged a sign, the one who I kiss is the man. And Judas betrays his mentor, his companion, his teacher, his rabbi, his savior, his God, with a kiss. And they arrest Jesus and haul him off. And he's questioned by high priests and the proconsul and the known king at that time. And and as he's being grilled, Judas finally comes to the realization, what have I done? I've condemned an innocent man. What am I going to do? And he does exactly what all of us would have done. He tries to undo it. And he goes to the high priests and Pharisees and says, I have sinned. 
What I've done, I've condemned an innocent man. And he gives the money back. And they, their response was, that's your problem, bud. We got what we wanted. And in his shame and in his guilt, his inability to undo what he had just done, he threw the money down in the temple and ran off. And that shame and guilt, which could have called him back to Jesus, instead drove him to suicide, ending his life, ending his chances of forgiveness, ending the relationship that he had with the Son of God. Such a tragic, horrible story. But in that story, it leads us to think about, but what about the priests and the Pharisees? They were part of this story also. And they, when I think of the priests and the Pharisees, they loved their religion of worshiping God much more than they loved God. They loved the structures. They loved the power. They loved the fact that people looked to them for answers. They loved that they were able to make the decisions. They loved it all. They were just missing that one part. <laughs> they didn't love God. Yet they could not make themselves unclean. I mean, they had just arrested a man, and it was on the eve of the Passover, and they couldn't in enter into the secular spots, the governing hall. So they stood outside, and they called Pilate out. You see, they loved the forms of religion. Jesus explained it once this way. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel, which to our ears sounds a little bit weird. But for those of you who've been engaged in our 60-day reading challenge, and you've probably been going through some tough parts, but you've read in there the sections that you become unclean when you touch anything dead. And so the Pharisees, that even their drinking water, they would sift, uh, put, put through a filter so that they wouldn't dare touch a dead gnat with their lips and become unclean. But they were willing to swallow an, something huge, like an, a camel, which was unclean. The idea was this, that they worry about those little wee details, but they forget the full concept. They were willing to condemn an innocent man they were willing to plan his death, to commit murder. But they didn't want to make themselves, quote-unquote, unclean. It's amazing how over time you can justify your actions. And you can think of yourself as doing the right thing. You can convince yourself. You can have that kind of self-denial that I'm religious enough so I'm okay. But all the time, they were turning their back on their creator. What are high priests supposed to do when one of their congregants comes to them and say, I have sinned? They're supposed to be that in-between between the sinner and God and lead them back. So when Judas comes to them and says, I have sinned, 
They are not at all interested in his sin or in his welfare or his conscience. They got what they wanted out of it all. They wanted Jesus in their hands so that they could kill him. Interestingly, when they had brought Jesus before Pilate and were wanting him to be condemned and to go to death, Pilate's response, but what has he done? He's an innocent man. Their response was this, let his blood be our concern, not yours. Let his blood be on our head, not on you. We take responsibility for this injustice. Don't worry about it. Just stamp the paper and crucify him. Interestingly enough, that response was honored by God. In the next 30 years or so, war broke out between Israel and Rome. I mean, Israel was already under Rome's control, but they started to revolt and started to fight against their masters. And Rome responded by marching in with their legions, totally obliterating the temple. It stones, the blocks of stone, which uh, range anywhere from two to four feet high and anywhere from six to eight feet long and two to three feet deep, worth tons, weighed tons each. They were all hauled off of their base and thrown down into the valley. The temple was burned and looted and destroyed so that its place there was completely lost. The city was destroyed. All the strongholds were overcome. And in the last ditch effort, the last religious leaders and the last soldiers and those who had power and money retreated to the hilltop fortress of Masada. And in the early 70s, that's AD 70, that fort was destroyed also, ending effectively the nation of Israel during that time. And they were gone, and the temple has never been rebuilt. The religion has never been reestablished. Even though the nation of Israel has found its homeland, they still do not have their full rights. They lost it all because they were much more interested in their religion and in their power and in their status than they were in the God that they were supposed to serve. But that reminds us of another person involved in that story, Pilate. Pil you know, Pilate had a real history there. He was a Roman citizen, and his job was to come and rule over Judea. And in that sense, to keep peace. And if you can't keep peace, you make peace. And if there's any rebels, you take care of them. In fact, he was granted almost unlimited power so that he could make peace. And Pilate had a history of being cruel. Not unusually cruel. I mean, all of the rulers did this in those days. But he was there to make peace and to rule this rabble and to make sure that nothing was going to disturb his higher-ups. 
Interestingly, when he first came to the land of Judea and came into Jerusalem, he brought all the Roman symbols with him. He came in with the standards and the emblems and, and the Jewish uh, high priests and Pharisees laid down in front of the Roman legions, not allowing them to enter into the city with all of the idols that they were bringing. And it was in this situation that Pilate had to back down and take all the Roman symbols and take them to the, to the seaside city of Caesarea. And it started off a very tense coexistence between Pilate and the chief priests. Interestingly enough, one of his roles as the governor was that Pilate had to appoint the high priest. Of course, the, the priest would bring someone to him to say, this is what we want, who we want to be approved. And his role was to approve them. But the irony of it all is that he was continually in conflict. And they were in continually in conflict with him. Scriptures talk about a time when Pilate actually uh, attacked a group of worshipers from Galilee. And they died in their worship time. But it was these people that came to manipulate Pilate. They wanted Jesus dead. But they wanted to justify it. And they wanted to have it done legally. And therefore they came to Pilate. And they started pushing all the buttons. Pilate's response was, but this is not right. And I'm not sure if he was appealing to them because he cared about what was right or this was another opportunity for him to kind of stick it to the leaders. We're not sure which it is. But he's done nothing wrong, wink, wink. Pilate was well aware that they had brought Jesus to him out of their self-interests. But they started pushing the buttons. At one time, Pilate responds, what is truth? Huh. Maybe that was a philosophical expression when Jesus says, I've come to speak of the truth. Or sometimes I wonder if it wasn't just one of those cynical responses. I mean, he's been at war with the Jewish people. He's seen the depth of their religion. He knows that in their religion, in the name of God, they want to murder truth the truth is he wanted to survive he wanted to be successful in his role and even when his wife warns him i've suffered many things in a dream don't have anything to do with convicting this innocent man and as Pilate tries to find his way through he looks for every little angle that he can somehow please the people and still let Jesus off. And at one time, he's, he, he uh, is ready to release a prisoner. And he did this on occasions at special times that the people could choose someone. And so Jesus puts, uh, so, sorry, uh, he's put up against with Jesus, 
and Barabbas. Barabbas, a known killer. Nobody wants Barabbas free on the streets. But the people chose Barabbas. And when Pilate was just ready to make a decision, well, I'm going to let him go anyway, they pushed this button. If you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar's. Like they cared. They hated Caesar, but it was one last button that they could push. And so in the end, Pilate adds Jesus to the list of crucifixions for the day. There was two who were already on the list. What's one more? And so Jesus is taken to the hill and crucified. And history tells us that after that, there was continual struggle and conflict between Pilate and those he was governing. Pilate was called back to Rome to answer to some charges laid on him by those same Jewish leaders. Fortunately, the, the person that he was responding to died before he had to go to court. Unfortunately, from what we also understand, is that because Pilate's career was now ruined, he probably also ended his life. And then we see a fourth person in this story, Peter. Peter was the true believer. You never had to wonder what he was thinking. He always said what was on his mind. When Jesus one time said, will you also turn from me to his disciples? And Peter was the one to say, who else could we go to? You have the words of life. See, people, people maybe misunderstood who Jesus was at times, but probably Peter understood him the best. That night when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet and showing them what true servanthood was, Peter's response was, don't wash my feet. You're the master. I'm the student. I'll, I would much rather wash your feet. And Jesus says, I have to wash your feet. Otherwise, you don't belong to me. Peter's response then was wholehearted. Well, don't, don't wash just my, my feet. Wash my hands and my head also. Do all of me. See, he was a wholehearted guy. And that night, Jesus warns Peter, Satan wants to sift you, but I've prayed for you that you will not fall. Jesus warns him, you are going to deny me three times tonight. And Peter was so strong, he says, not me, Lord. And all of the disciples said, no, we won't deny you either. In fact, Jesus, Peter says, I'm willing to die for you right now. And as they head off to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter makes sure he has his eye on one of the two swords that they have within their midst. And when the soldiers come and they enter the garden with their torches and their clubs and their swords, it was Peter that was ready to make his vow good. I'm going to die for my master. And he grabs a sword, and you have to understand, he's a fisherman, not a soldier. He starts swinging that sword around wildly. And we sometimes wonder, so why did he choose to cut off the ear of a servant? 
My only explanation for that is because he missed his head. He thought he could show his quality, his conviction, how much he was a faithful follower of Jesus. And he slashed out only to have Jesus stop him and not allow him to fight. And in that instant, Peter and John and all of the other disciples, fear entered their lives and they ran. They abandoned their master to the soldiers. And that night, Peter is around the fire with some of the soldiers. He came back. He wanted to see what was going on. And as he was there, someone said, hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, 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 it's not me. In fact, three times, and in the last one, he was so strong that he emphasized it with cursings. I have nothing to do with that man. And at that time, that crow, the uh, rooster crowed, and all that Jesus had warned him about came back to him. I failed you. I've done that awful thing I said I would not do. I turned my back on him in his hour of need. I said I would give my life for him. And here I just swore that I didn't even know him. And like Judas, he was seized with shame and regret. And he went out and he wept. And a few days later, they were back at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had said, meet me. After all of this, meet me back at the, in Galilee. So Peter and a number of the disciples were in Galilee. And Peter was out fishing with some of them. And I can just imagine it's early in the morning. The mist is just coming off the lake. They're about 100 yards or so offshore, but they can't really see the shore because of the mist. And they've had a fruitless night of fishing. And someone from the shore calls out, have you any fish? Of course, they had nothing. Try the other side of the boat. Oh, yeah, here's another one trying to tell us how to do our job. And they throw the net on the other side, and it's full instantly. And John goes, it's the Lord. And Peter's response instantly, not to pull up the net, not to row to shore, nothing, he just launches himself off the boat and thrashes his way to shore as quickly as he can. I don't know how long it takes to pull up a net, to row it into shore, to get it all there. Maybe he had 20 minutes. Who knows? I would have loved to be a fly on the wall to hear that conversation between Peter and Jesus. What would he have said? What could you have said? After denying Jesus, being warned about it, and having done it anyway, what could you say? You know, John doesn't tell us about the conversation. Nobody tells us, because no one else heard it. 
It was between Peter and Jesus. You know, Peter was seized with regret, so was Judas. Peter experienced shame and guilt, so did Judas. But what is the difference between the two? The difference being repentance. Judas' shame led him to end his life. Peter's shame was to run to Jesus, to swim to Jesus, to do anything to get to Jesus. You know, there's a few things that we know about repentance. We don't know a lot about repentance, but we know some things. And repentance is turning away from your sin and turning towards God. But there are, these are the things that we know. If you want to repent, this is what has to happen. First, you have to own your sin. You have to understand that I did this. It's mine. Now, there might have been extenuating circumstances. There might have been people and events that have influenced your decision. But in the end, you have to say, this was my choice. I sinned. You know, Jesus at one time said, I did not call healthy people to come see the doctor, but the sick. Only sinners need to repent and to say that that's me. I'm the unhealthy person. I'm the sinner. And this proves it. Look what I just did. Look at this choice. Look how I treated that person. Look at how I just betrayed my values. We must first own our sin. Second, we must confess our sin. That means to be able to admit it and to make amends where possible. Now sometimes I don't want to confess my sin. Sometimes I'm so ashamed of what I have just done. I mean, I'm a pastor. I teach the scriptures. I've lived a whole life within the church. And I did that? I can't believe it. And sometimes my shame drives me away to want to avoid God. I can't admit this. I am so ashamed of it. But that shame should drive us to Christ not away. Or sometimes you might think, yeah, I've done this before. <laughs> In fact, I'm getting tired of confessing this same thing over and over. I'm sure God doesn't even believe me anymore. You know, interesting how it was Peter who once asked Jesus, so how many times should I forgive my brother in a day? Seven times? And Jesus' response was, no, not just seven. Seventy times seven. Keep going. And see, that's the thing, is that God loves to forgive. And he loves it even if we must repeatedly come back to him. And I want to tell you that you are more frustrated with yourself than Christ is. He's expecting it. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he's inviting us, even if we must do it repeatedly, to keep coming to him. So we confess our sin, and third, all sin is forgivable. You say, really? Is all sin forgivable? 
What about murder? Well, the Apostle Paul was first a murderer before he gave his life to Christ. Even murder. In fact, it, you know, some of us might say that, well, what if I've committed the unforgivable sin? Can that be forgiven? <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't really know what the unforgivable sin is. But what we do know is that any sin that's repented of, any times we come to him and own our sin and confess our sin to him, and when we confess truly and honestly, all sin is forgivable. Peter himself said later on that the Lord is patient and he wants no man to perish. But in his patience, he, he calls us to repentance. He doesn't want any to be destroyed but to turn to him. See, all sin is covered by his grace. That was the point of the story when Jesus told it about the rich man who forgave the sin of a subject. This man owed so much and the king forgave him. But then he went out and didn't forgive the debts of other people. You see, where we are in that story, we are the man who, f who did not choose to forgive. And whatever sin people have done to us, it's a small amount compared to how I've sinned against Christ. But he's willing to forgive all of our sins. From the lowliest sin, from the smallest sin, to the most despicable of sins that you commit, that I commit. The ones that we commit accidentally and the ones that are premeditated, they're all covered by his grace. The fourth thing we find out about repentance is that all people find mercy and grace. It does not matter your gender, whether you even know your gender or not. It doesn't matter your nationality or your background or your cultural group. It doesn't matter if you are religious or an atheist, whether you're an open sinner, whether you are an evil tyrant, whether you are a sly dog or an evil dictator. See, God's grace is for you. In fact, this is why Jesus died. In fact, all these people are built into the story of Jesus' death, his betrayal, his death, his punishment. Because these are the people he died for. And if you and I were there, we'd be in the story somewhere, turning our backs on Jesus in some way. And yet he calls us. I died for you. It's your sin. That thing that you just did right now, I died for that. That choice that you just made that was horrendous, I died for that. That person that you just defiled, I died for that. That money that you just stole, 
how you twisted the truth. All of that. That's why I died. In fact, one of the best things we can do when we sin is to admit it and confess it to God and say, Lord, this is why you died for me. This is why I need you. Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, these are passages of Scripture that you and I, whether you're a believer or not, need to know. See, it says here, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves. And I'm always surprised at the depth of our self-deception. If we claim we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and we're not living in the truth. To ignore ourselves is to live in deception. But, as the next verse says, but if we confess our sin, admit it, own it, bring it to light, not hide it. We speak about it both to God and to others, which is an important thing. But, I'm, but I mean, you have to be really convinced that you are a sinner to do that. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He first forgives us, absolves us of the guilt. And then he begins changing us so that we, can, we no longer have to continue on in that direction. Changing us from the inside out. Not just changing our actions so that people think we're good, but begin changing our heart. That's not what I want to do. And Lord, I need your power at work in my life so that I don't go down that road again. Don't let your sin, your evil, your failings, your self-centeredness, the ways that you are like Peter, or Pilate, or like the Pharisees, or like Judas, or like Benedict Arnold. Don't let those things keep you from turning to Christ. Because he longs to both save you, forgive you, and to wash you clean. But that's the part that's up to you. Whether you're willing to own it, confess it and come to him for forgiveness and this morning i want to urge you as you wrestle with your sin whether you are a longtime believer or a new believer or not a believer at all when you sin come to him for forgiveness and let him do his work let's pray Heavenly Father, unfortunately, there's so much of Judas and Peter in all of us, of Pilate and the Pharisees. Father, we are betrayers. We are deniers. We are sinners. That's who we are. And Lord, thank you that you love us anyway. Father, give us the courage to face our shame, our guilt, to own it and to come to you so that you can do your cleansing and forgiving work. 
Thank you for your mercy that all who come to you will in no way be cast aside. Thank you that your grace is for us too. In Jesus' name.